Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to discuss how nation-state conflict and sponsored cyber attacks can affect us as non-combatants and what we should be doing about it. Now, even if you don't have operations in a war zone, remember cyber has a global reach. So don't think that just because you may be half a world away from the battlefield, that someone is not going to reach out and touch you in a bad way. So listen for what I think will be a fascinating episode and please do us a small favor and give us a like or a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Those ratings really help us reach our peers. It only takes a click and thank you for helping out our security leadership community. Now, I'm not going to get into any geopolitics here. However, I am going to try to ensure that this episode remains useful for quite some time. However, since the conflict in Ukraine has been ongoing for over 200 days, I will draw examples from that. Other than that, I'm going to try to keep it generic. The ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu wrote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. That's a little more detailed than the classic Greek aphorism, know thyself, but the intent is the same even today. Let me add one more quote and we'll get into the material. Over 20 years ago, when he was Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld said, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. And if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tends to be the difficult ones. So knowledge seems extremely important throughout the ages, and modern governments know that, and as a result, all have their own intelligence agencies. Let's look at an example. If we go to the CIA's website, we'll see the fourfold mission of the Central Intelligence Agency. Number one, collecting foreign intelligence that matters. Number two, producing objective all-source analysis. Number three, conducting effective covert action as directed by the president. And number four, safeguarding the secrets that help keep our nation safe. Now, why do we mention this? Most governments around the world have similar nation-state objectives and mission statements. Additionally, it's particularly important to understand what is wanted by, quote, state actors. Note, I'll use that term for government and contract intelligence agents. What are typical goals for state actors? Let's take a look at a couple. Goal one, steal targeting data to enable future operations. Data such as cell phone records, banking statements, or emails allow countries to better target individuals and companies when they know that identifying information. Additionally, targeting data allows nation-state organizations to understand how individuals are connected. This can be key when we're looking for important influencers for targets of interest. All targeting data should not be considered equal. Generally, banking and telecom data are considered the best for collecting, so be mindful if that's the type of company that you protect. State actors target these organizations because of two factors. The importance of the data is the first factor. If one party sends a second party an email, that means there's a basic level of connection. 
However, it's not automatically a strong connection since we all receive email from spammers. If one party calls someone and talks for 10 minutes to them on a phone call, that generally means a closer connection than an email. And finally, if one party sends money to another party, that either means really strong connection exists or someone just got scammed. The accuracy of the data is the second factor. Many folks sign up for social media accounts with throwaway credentials, that is, fake names and phone numbers. Others will use temporary emails to attend conferences so they don't get marketing spam when they get home. However, because of anti-money laundering or AML laws, people generally provide legitimate data to financial services firms. They don't. They risk not being able to take their money out of the bank, which would be a big problem. A second goal, in addition to collecting targeting data, is that state actors are interested in collecting foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence, which drives policy-making decisions is very impactful. Remember, stealing secrets that no one cares about is generally just a waste of government tax dollars. If governments collect foreign intelligence on sanctioned activity, then they can inform policymakers on the effectiveness of current sanctions, which is highly useful. By reporting sanctioned activity, the government can know when current sanctions are being violated and when to update them. This can result in enabling new intelligence collection objectives. Here's an example. A country may sanction a foreign air carrier that changes ownership or goes out of business. In that case, sanctions may be added against different airlines. This occurred when the U.S. sanctioned Mahan Air, an Iran airline. Currently, the U.S. enforces sanctions on more than half of Iran's civilian airlines. A country may place sanctions on a foreign bank to limit its ability to trade in certain countries or currencies. However, if sanctioned banks circumvent controls by trading with smaller banks which are not sanctioned, then current sanctions are likely ineffective. Examples of sanctioning bank activity by the U.S. against Russia during the current war with Ukraine include on the 27th of February, sanctions were placed against Russian banks using the SWIFT international payment systems. On the 28th of February, the Russian Central Bank was sanctioned. On the 24th of March, the Russian bank Sberbank CEOs was sanctioned. On the 5th of April, the U.S. IRS suspended information exchanges with the Russian tax authorities in an attempt to hamper Moscow's ability to collect taxes. On the 6th of April, the U.S. sanctioned additional Russian banks. And, and these sanctions didn't just start with the onset of hostilities on the 24th of February, 2022. They date back to Russia's invasion of Crimea. It's just that the U.S. has turned up the volume this time. If sanctions are placed against the country's nuclear energy practices, then knowing what companies are selling or trading goods into the sanctioned countries becomes very important. Collecting information from transportation companies that identify goods being imported and exported into the country can also identify sanctions effectiveness. A third goal or activity taken by state actors is covert action. Covert action is generally intended to cause harm to another state without attribution. However, anonymity is often hard to maintain. If we look at Russia and its previous history with Ukraine, we have seen the use of cyber attacks as a form of covert action. The devastating NotPetya malware, which has generally been credited to Russia, was launched as a supply chain attack. Russian agents allegedly compromised the software update mechanism of Ukrainian accounting software MEDOC, which was used by nearly 400,000 clients to manage financial documents and file tax returns. This update did much more than the intended choking off of Ukrainian government tax revenue. Maersk shipping estimates a loss of $300 million. FedEx, around $400 million. The total global damage to companies is estimated around $10 billion. 
And remember, many of them were not the primary target of this attack. The use of cyber attacks hasn't been limited to just Russia. Another example is Stuxnet. This covert action attack against Iranian nuclear facilities destroyed nearly 1,000 centrifuges, and it's generally attributed to the U.S. and Israel, although not formally acknowledged. Changing topics a little bit, we can think of the story of two people encountering a bear. My two friends are in the woods having a picnic, and they spot a bear, and it's moving toward them. So one friend gets up and starts running away. The other friend opens his backpack, takes out his running shoes, and takes out his hiking boots and puts his running shoes on. Are you crazy? The first friend shouts, looking over his shoulder as the bear closes in on his friend. You can't outrun the bear. I don't have to outrun the bear, said the second friend. I only have to outrun you. Okay, yeah, we've probably heard that before, and well, who needs friends like that? But the point is, let's think about how can we outrun the cyber bear. Well, we need to anticipate where the bear is likely to be encountered. And just as national park signs warn tourists of animals, there's intelligence information that can inform the general public. If you're looking for physical safety intelligence, you might consider the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Consular Affairs. The State Department hosts a travel advisory list, and this list allows anyone to know if a country has issues such as COVID outbreaks, civil unrest, kidnappings, violent crime, and other issues that would complicate having an office for most businesses. Another example is the CIA World Factbook. The World Factbook provides basic intelligence on the history, people, government, economy, energy, geography, environment, communications, transportation, military, terrorism, and transnational issues for 266 world entities. Additionally, you might also consider data sources from the World Health Organization and the World Bank. I've got links to all those in our show notes. If we believe that one of our remote offices is now at risk, then we need to establish a good communications plan. Good communications plans generally require at least four forms of communication. The acronym PACE, or Primary, Alternate, Contingency, and Emergency, is often used. For primary communication, we'll first try to email folks at the office. As alternate communications, if we're unable to communicate via email, then we'll try calling their work phones. As a contingency communication, if we're unable to reach individuals via their work phones, then we can send a text message to their personal cell phones. And emergency communication comes in when we're unable to reach them by texting their personal devices or reaching them in the previous manners, then we can send an email to their personal emails or the next of kin. Now, when I worked at U.S. Pacific Command several years ago as a Joint Operations Center director, I remember we had a call come in from the White House, and they wanted to talk to the four-star Admiral, Admiral Keating. Well, it was kind of late in the afternoon. It was actually pretty close to shift change. Like, I don't want to pick up the phone. I'm going off duty. And the other guy's like, I'm, you're still on duty. You got to answer it. It's like, I don't want to. I got to like, find like, yeah, I got to pick it up. Yes. Come on, your specific command. May I help you? And of course, they want to talk to the, the big boss. Well, we called up and he was not in his office. And then we called in his quarters and he wasn't in his quarters. And then we called his Secure phone, he wasn't there. We called his mobile phone. Then we called his executive aide, and he wasn't at his desk. Then we called his EA. We finally got a hold, I think it was the seventh or eighth call on the EA's personal cell phone. The Admiral was down on board the USS Missouri doing some ceremony. There's an awful lot of people there. They were involved, and nobody was monitoring all these other types of communications. In this case, we probably had even more, like 11 different ways. If we had to get in touch with the big boss, we can do so. 
Have you got anything approaching that? When was the last time you checked and updated your contact information for your important people? Sure, we've got the IT help desk, and you probably have somebody's cell phone number at home. But what about the rest of your employees? Don't they count? We're talking about being in a potential area geographically where they could be at physical risk. If you don't have a way to identify all these different methods, the primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency communications for every member of your organization, get hot. Do it now. What else could we do? We could purchase satellite phones for the country manager. Satellite phones can generally be purchased for under $1,000, and they can be used with commercial satellite service providers such as Inmarsat, Global Star, and Thraya. One popular plan is Inmarsat's BGAN or BGAN. BGAN can usually be obtained from resellers for about $100 a month, with text messaging costing about $0.50 cents each and calls costing about $1.50 a minute. This usually translates to a yearly cost of $1,500 to $2,000 per device. But is $2,000 worth the price of communicating to save lives in a high-risk country during high political turmoil? Let your company decide. Note a good time to bring this up, maybe during use or lose money discussions at the end of the budgeting year. We should also consider preparing egress locations. Do you remember back in grammar school when you had fire drills and all the students would have to get out and you'd go to your assembly point, usually in the parking lot, and the teachers would count heads and they would then be able to know if everybody were taken care of, identified. And we did this pretty much every month so that in the event of real emergency, people wouldn't have to stop and think or ask for directions. They'd know right what to do. Businesses should be doing the same thing. For example, before a fire drill, most companies will plan a meetup location outside of their building so they can form, form a headcount. Now, this location, such as a vacant parking lot across the street, by the way, don't have people assemble right outside the door because if something happened to the building, it's going to happen to them too. They need to move away from the building. But if you go, for example, this parking lot across the street allows teams to identify missing personnel, which could later be communicated to emergency personnel if we had to do search and rescue. If your company has offices in 35 countries, you should think about the same thing, but not assembling across the street, but across the border. Have you identified an egress office for each overseas country? If you had operations in Ukraine, then you might have chosen a neighboring country, such as Poland, Romania, or Hungary, to facilitate departures. When things started going really bad, that office could begin to create support networks to find local housing for your corporate refugees. Additionally, finding job opportunities for family members could also be extremely helpful when language is a barrier in new countries. If we anticipate that the bear is going to attack our company digitally, then we should also look for the warning signs. Good examples of this include following threat intelligence information from your local ISAC organization. ISAC, or Information Sharing Analysis Centers, are great communities where you can see if your vertical sector is coming under attack and share your experiences and your threats. The National Council of ISACs lists 25 different members across a wide range of industries. An example is the Financial Services ISAC, or FSISAC, which has a daily and weekly feed where subscribers can find situational reports on cyber threats from state actors and criminal groups. In the United States, InfraGuard is a partnership between the FBI and members of the private sector for the protection of U.S. critical infrastructure. 
No, you generally need to be a U.S. citizen without a criminal history to join, but it's an excellent source of information. Alien Vault offers a threat intelligence community called the Open Threat Exchange. It grants users free access to over 19 million threat indicators. And note that Alien Vault currently hosts over 100,000 global participants, so it's a great place to connect with fellow professionals. The United States Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, also routinely issues cybersecurity advisors to stop harmful malware, ransomware, and nation-state attacks. Helpful pages on their websites include the following. Shields Up provides updates on cyber threats, guidance for organizations, recommendations for corporate leaders and CEOs, ransomware responsibilities, free tools and steps that you can take to protect your families. There's even a Shields technical guidance page with more detailed recommendations. CISA routinely puts out alerts which identify threat actor tactics and techniques. For example, alert Alpha Alpha 22 Tag 011 Alpha identifies how to understand and mitigate Russian state-sponsored cyber threats to U.S. critical infrastructure. This alert tells you what CBEs the Russian government is using, as well as the documented TTPs which map to the MITRE attack framework. Note if you want to see more on the MITRE attack framework mapped to various intrusion groups, we recommend going to attack mitre.org slant groups. CISA also has notifications that organizations can sign up for to receive timely information on security issues, vulnerabilities, and high-impact activity. Another page to note on CISA's website is U.S. CERT. Here you can report cyber incidents, report phishing, report malware, report vulnerabilities, share indicators, or contact the U.S. CERT. One helpful page to consider is the Cyber Resilience Review Assessment. Most organizations have an IT control to conduct yearly risk assessments, and this can help identify weaknesses in your controls. Now that we've seen the bear in the woods, what can we do to put our running shoes on to run faster than our peers? If we look at the CISA Shield Technical Guidance page, we can find Shields Up recommendations such as remediating vulnerabilities, enforcing multi-factor authentication, running antivirus, enabling strong spam filters to prevent phishing attacks, disabling ports and protocols that are not essential, and strengthening controls for cloud services. Let's look at this in more detail to properly fasten our running shoes. If we're going to remediate vulnerabilities, let's focus on the highest priority. I would argue that those are the high critical vulnerabilities with known exploits being used in the wild. You can go to CISA's Known Exploited Vulnerabilities catalog page for a detailed list. Again, links are in the notes. Each time a new vulnerability gets added, Run a vulnerability scan on your environment to prioritize patching. Next is multi-factor authentication, or MFA. Routinely, we see organizations require MFA access to websites and use single sign-on. This is great. Please don't stop doing this. However, we would also recommend MFA enhancements in two ways. One, are you using MFA on remote desktop protocol or secure shell logins by admins? If not, then please enable that immediately. You never know when one developer will get fished and the attacker can pull the SSH keys. Having MFA means that even when those keys are lost, bad actor propagation can be limited. Another enhancement is to increase the security within your MFA functionality. For example, if you use Microsoft Authenticator today, try changing from a six-digit rotating pin to using security features such as number matching. You can display even the location of an IP address. You can also look at GPS conditional policies to geo-block all access from countries in which you don't have a presence. 
running antivirus. It's another important safeguard. Yes, we've been doing it for years, but here's the kicker. Do you actually know what percentage of your endpoints are running antivirus and EDR agents? Great. Do you have coverage on both your Windows and Linux server environments? Okay, of the agents running, what portions have signature updates that are not current? How about more than 30 days old? We find a lot of companies just check the box saying they have antivirus, but if you look behind the scenes and dig, you can see that antivirus isn't as effective as you might think it is when it's turned off or the signatures are out of date. Enabling strong spam filters is another forgotten exercise. Yes, companies buy solutions like Proofpoint to secure email, but there's more that can be done. One example is implementing DMARC to properly authenticate and block spoofed emails. It's a standard now and prevents brand impersonation. Also, please consider restricting top-level domains for your email. You can do this at the very top. For today, the vast majority of legitimate correspondents still utilize one of the original seven top-level domains, .com, .org, .net, .edu, .mil, .gov, and .int, as well as the two-letter country code top-level domains, which are called CCTLDs. However, you should look carefully at your business correspondence to determine if communicating with all 1,487 top-level domains is really necessary. When I say 1487 top-level domains or TLDs, I don't mean something.com, I mean what comes after that last dot. Let's say your business is located entirely in the UK. Do you really want to allow emails from country codes such as .ru or .cn and others? Do you want to do business with .hair or .lifestyle or .xxx? If you don't have a business reason for conducting commerce with these top-level domains, block them and minimize both spam and harmful attacks. Block their DNS as well. It won't stop bad actors from using Gmail to send phishing attacks, but you might be surprised at just how much restricting TLDs in your email can help. Note that you have to be careful not to create a self-inflicted denial of service, so make sure that emails from suspected top-level domains get evaluated before you delete them. Disabling ports and protocols is key since you don't want bad actors having easy targets. One thing to consider is using Amazon Inspector. Amazon Inspector has rules in the network reachability package to analyze your network configurations to find security vulnerabilities in your EC2 instances. This can highlight and provide guidance about restricting access that is not secure, such as network configurations that allow for a potentially malicious access, such as mismanaged security groups, access control lists, internet gateways, and so on. And lastly, strengthening cloud security. We won't get into this topic too much as you could spend a whole talk on strengthening cloud security. But companies should consider purchasing a cloud security solution like Wiz, Orca, or Prisma for help in this regard. One tip we don't see often is using geofencing and IP allow lists. For example, one new feature that AWS recently created is to enable web application firewall protections for Amazon Cognito. This makes it easier to protect user pools and hosted user interfaces from common web exploits. Once we notice that there's likely been a bear attack on our peers and our infrastructure, we should report it. And this can be done by reporting incidents to local governments, such as a CISA or a local FBI field office, paid sharing organizations such as ISAC, or free communities such as the Alien Vault OTX. Let's walk through a notional example of what we might encounter as collateral damage in a cyber war. However, to keep this out of current geopolitics, we use a fictitious country's blue and orange. 
imagine that you work at the Acme Widget Corporation, which is a Fortune 500 company with a global presence. Because Acme manufactures large-scale widgets in their factory in the nation of Orange, they're also sold to the local Orange economy. Unfortunately for Acme, Orange has just invaded their neighbor country, Blue. And given that Orange is viewed as the aggressor, various countries have imposed sanctions against Orange. Not wanting to attract the attention of the Orange military or the U.S. Treasury Department, your company produces an idea that might just be crazy enough to work. You're going to form a new company within Orange that is not affiliated with the parent company for the entirety of the war. And this means that the parent company won't provide services to the Orange company. Your new business is going to be incorporated in the host country and you're going to break the ties. Since there's no affiliation between the companies, then the legal department advises there will not be sanction evasion activity, which could put the company at risk because they're not related anymore. There's just one problem. Your company has to evict the newly created Orange Company, let's call it Acme Orange LLC, from its network and ensure it has the critical IT services to enable its success. So where do we start? Let's consider a few things. First, what is the lifeblood of a company? Every company really needs laptops and collaboration software like Office 365 or G Suite. So if you have 500 people in the new Acme Orange company, that's 500 new laptops and a new server that'll host Microsoft Exchange and NAS Drive and other critical Microsoft stuff on premises. Now, think about Active Directory. Once you obtain the server, you realize a few things. Previous Acme admin credentials were used to troubleshoot desktops in the Orange environment. Since exposed passwords are always a bad thing, you get your first incident to refresh all passwords that might have been exposed. Also, you ensure a new Active Directory server is created for your Orange environment. This should leverage best practices such as MFA since Orange companies will likely come under attack. Let's mention a couple other things that companies need to survive. They need customer relations management, CRM services like Salesforce, accounting and bookkeeping applications such as QuickBooks, Payment software, such as PayPal or Stripe. File storage, such as Google Drive or Dropbox. Video conferencing, like Zoom. Customer service software, like Zendesk. Contract management software, like DocuSign. HR software, like Bamboo or My Workday. And, of course, antivirus and EDR software. See, standing up a new company's IT infrastructure in a month is never a trivial task. However, if Acme Orange is to be able to survive for two to three years, then it can return back to the parent company after the sanctions are lifted, if you do it right. So think about it. What IT services will be the hardest to transfer? It's going to differ for every organization, but think about them and write them down. Can the new IT equipment for Acme Orange be procured within a month during the time of the onset of conflict? Do you have supply chains already set up? What if they get interrupted? Do you have a secondary supplier, maybe even a tertiary? What services are likely to only have a software as a service offering and not enable on-premises during times of conflicts? And could your company actually close a procurement request in a one-month timeline? That's pretty aggressive. If we believe we can transfer IT services and get the office up and running, we might look at our cyber team's role in providing recommendations to a new office that will be able to survive a time of turmoil. All laptops should have antivirus and EDR enabled from Microsoft. Since the Acme Orange office is isolated from the rest of the world, all firewalls will block IP traffic 
not originating from Orange. SSO and MFA will be required on all logins, and backups need to be routinely required. Note, if you're really looking for effective strategies to mitigate cybersecurity incidents, we highly recommend the Australian Essential 8. We have a link in our show notes if you want more details. Additionally, the Acme Orange IT department will need to create its own incident response plan, or IRP. One really good guide for building a cyber incident response playbook comes from the American Public Power Association, and I'll put that link in our show notes. The IRP recommends creating incident templates that can be used for common attacks, such as denial of service, malware, web app attacks, such as SQL injection or cross-site scripting, cyber physical attacks, phishing, man-in-the-middle attacks, zero-day exploits. If you have incident templates for those, you don't have to stop and figure things out when something goes wrong. You just simply follow the procedures and you're much more likely to make it work. The incident response template can identify helpful information such as for detection, recording how the attack was identified. For reporting, provide a list of points of contact and contact information for the IT help desk to contact during an event. For triage, you can list the activities that need to be performed during incident response and typically teams will follow the pickerel model, preparation, identification, containment, eradication, recovery, and lessons learned. Don't forget classification. Depending on the severity level of the event, you might need to identify additional actions that need to occur. And communications. Identify how to notify local law enforcement, regulatory agencies, and insurance carriers during a material cyber incident. And additionally, describe the process on how communications will be relayed to customers, employees, media, and state and local leaders. An important thing to consider in training your staff is when something happens, don't talk to the media. The media is not there to be your friend. They're there to look for a story. Let your strategic communications team handle that. And although it might be fun to be on the internet or be on TV, you need to convince your people to say, no, please contact our communications department. And if they press continually get that from a well-trained staff, they're going to stop bugging your people so they can get the work done, and you're going to avoid the potential for gotchas. As you can see, there's much that would have to be done in response to a nation-state aggression or regional conflict that would likely fall in your lap. If you didn't think about it before, you now have plenty of material to work with. Figure out your own unique requirements. Do some tabletop exercises where you identify your most relevant orange and blue future conflict and practice, practice, practice. We learned from COVID that companies that were well-prepared with a disaster response plan, rebranded as a pandemic response plan, fared much better in the early weeks of the 2020 lockdown. I know my office transitioned to remote work for over 60 consecutive weeks without any serious IT issues or service interruptions because we had a written plan and we had practiced it. Here's another one for you to add to your arsenal. Take the time and be prepared, and you'll be a hero when the bubble goes up. There, you learned an obscure term that's nearly absent from a Google search, but it's well known in the Navy and Marine Corps. Okay, that's it for today's episode on Outrunning the Bear. Let's recap. Know yourself. Know what foreign adversaries want. Know what information, processes, or people you need to protect. Know the goals of state actors. Steal targeting data, collect foreign intelligence, and perform covert action. 
Know how to establish a good communications plan. Remember pace, primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. Know how to get out of Dodge. You got physical egress procedures practiced and written down. Know where to find private and government threat intelligence and read it. Know your quick wins for protection. Remediate your vulnerabilities. Implement MFA everywhere. Run current antivirus. Enable strong spam filters. Restrict top-level domains to just those you need. Disable vulnerable or unused ports and protocols and strengthen your cloud security. And lastly, know how to partition your business logically to isolate your IT environments in the event of a sudden requirement. Thanks again for listening to CISO Tradecraft, and please remember to like us on your favorite podcast provider and tell your peers about us. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, too. You can find a regular stream of low-noise, high-value postings. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and until the next time, stay safe.